0: I guess I want to begin by really just um, offering my best wishes to each and every one of you and to all of your loved ones for health and safety. Um, this is, you know, by any measure, an extremely scary and difficult time. Um, and I hope we can at least have some sense of community together for the next little while. Um, I also want to invite you um, to use the comments to simply introduce yourself, your name and where you find yourself, because I looking at the people who are currently on this call, um, the people I know represent several continents and countless cities, and it would just be nice to feel a sense of connection with all of you. And you know, if you have a wish for everyone, you should feel free to add that in the chat box as well. Um, this series. What I hope to do is each session that we have, we will work through one peric to one chapter of the Psalms. We will do a close literary and theological reading, trying to understand um, both what the text is saying and how it goes about saying it. Um, When I was um, in college, there was a, a book that was often used in literature classes called how does a poem mean? Not what does a poem mean, but you know, how does a poem mean? And one of the things that I would like us to think about as we work through these texts is not just what the Psalms say, powerful and important as that is, but also to examine some of the means, the literary means by which it says often very powerful, subtle things. Um, One of the reasons that I personally am so preoccupied with the book of Psalms and so committed to teaching it is that in my in my mid 30s so now you know more significantly more than a decade ago i felt as though i had discovered the book of psalms for the first time and what i found there um, in some ways this might be less true of the psalm we're going to do today than it will be of some of the others we'll do when we go along as we go along but what i found there was a degree of honesty and a willingness to embrace theological positions and theological questions that are unsettling and disturbing in ways that had been completely erased from my own education in Jewish studies and in Tanakh. And I wanna sort of welcome people into the incredibly rich world that these Psalms engage. Just to give a very concrete example of what I mean by that, which we'll see later on um, as, as, as we come to more sessions, is that on the one hand, The Psalms will describe a world in which God is the ruler and the world is just and the forces that oppose God have been defeated. And at the same time, the Psalms will give voice sometimes in the very same Psalms to a voice that says, oh, really? Well, then why is the world an abyss? Why is it so impossible to simply make one's way through the world without being attacked and hated and abused um, and without falling ill in inexplicable ways? And it's that latter voice that I felt like um, was really, uh, again, effaced in, in, in my childhood education in yeshivot, and that I think is actually really important. One more way of putting that is, I was always taught that what a Jew says in response to tragedy is gamzula tova in the language of the Tamil, this is also for the good. The authors of the book of Psalms would have been shocked to hear someone suggests that that was the only possible response, because to them, one totally legitimate response is to say, this is unfair, and I demand that the situation be changed. There is an element of protest here that I think is really quite um, courageous and moving, even if at times also disturbing. The psalm we're going to study today is a little bit different. This is a Psalm that is familiar to many people because it is part of the Shabbat and Yom Tov P'sukei de Zimra, the Psalms that are recited in the opening part of the, the morning liturgy. And it is one of three Psalms that are about Torah. The three Psalms that are explicitly and directly about Torah in Sefer Tehillim, in the book of Psalms are Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. Psalm 19, is distinctive, I think, in connecting the wisdom that is discernible in the heavens, we'll see what that means in just a moment or two, with the wisdom discernible in Torah. Um, It's very interested, I think, in the relationship between what can be discovered in each of those places. And maybe even, I think you can say, in the nature of the God you can find in nature and the nature of God you can find in Torah. I would love to have someone simply read it in Hebrew and read the JPS translation, you know, um, to read Hebrew and then English, just so we all hear it. And then we'll discuss it first in general terms and then verse by verse. Let me just see if I can find someone here who I might be able to rope into reading in Hebrew and English. Chippy, any chance that you would be willing to talk? Hi. Hello, good to hear your voice.
1: I have the Hebrew in front of me. I don't have the English in front of me.
0: Okay, then you know what? You read the Hebrew and I will read the JPS translation, which I will quibble with later. Okay, go ahead. So read one Pasuk and I'll, and I'll translate. Okay?
1: okay? We're on 19.
0: We're on Psalm 19, Tehillim Perik Yotet.
1: Okay.
0: <speaking> A Psalm of David. l. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims God's handiwork. Day to day makes utterance. Night to night speaks out. There is no utterance. There are no words whose sound goes unheard. Their voice carries throughout the earth, their words to the end of the world. God placed in them a tent for the sun. Who is like a groom coming forth from the chamber, like a hero eager to run his course. His rising place is at one end of heaven, and his circuit reaches the other. Nothing escapes his heat. The teaching of the Lord is perfect, renewing life. The decrees of the Lord are enduring, making the simple wise. The precepts of the Lord are just, rejoicing the heart. The instruction of the Lord is lucid, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, abiding forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. More desirable than gold, than much fine gold. Sweeter than honey, than drippings of the comb. Your servant pays them heed. In obeying them, there is much reward. Who can be aware of errors? Clear me of unperceived guilt. Right. right, from willful sins, keep your servant. Let them not dominate me. Then I shall be blameless and clear of grave offense. May the words of my mouth and the prayer of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Um, okay. Thank you. Um, so just a few opening comments, and i and I hope that over time, we'll be able to have people raise their hands and 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 share comments. Um, but I want to say, first of all, that this is a, a poem, as you just heard, that is not easy to cater- categorize in terms of genre, right? Sukim Beti Yarale, verses 2 to 11, seem like a hymn, or maybe even a pair of hymns, verses 2 to 7 and 8 to 11 could be separate. Two hymns in praise of God's wisdom, verses 12 to 14 seem like a petition for forgiveness and um, enlightenment. Many scholars have argued, especially kind of more, many academic, historically minded scholars, have argued that this text is an amalgamation of two psalms verses two to seven, which is about revelation through the heavens and the sun, and verses eight to 15, which are about the Torah that enlightens and purifies those who adhere to it. Um, some, by the way, even argued that verses 12 to 15 was yet another third text. Um, and I, I, I just want to observe that um, as a rule, as usual, most recent interpretations are more focused on the unified texts than on its purported sources and here I actually want to suggest that when you read the the finished text carefully it makes the idea that this is two separate texts I think in fact quite problematic. Um, I think it's actually very clear that this is one poem and what it requires as I always say is reading slowly enough to see how the two parts might be talking to one another. Um, Okay now I I, I guess I will also just mention here, um, I I, I guess I'll mention a variety of examples of what I mean by that as we walk through it in a couple of minutes, verse by verse. I also wanna mention in the same spirit of sort of how have critical scholars engaged with this text is that many scholars argue that verses two to seven, bet through Zion are actually an origin, an old Canaanite hymn to the sun. And they are extremely taken with the fact that Hashem's name, yod Hey vav Hey is not mentioned in those psukim. But even if that's so, which I'm not convinced, but even if that's so, look at how it's been transformed here, right? Here, this is not in any way a song about the sun being a god. Rather, right? along with the heavens and the rakia the firmament and you know and day and night the sun is in fact something that is created that testifies to god's sovereignty in other words right the sun is not god the sun is gods the sun is not worshipped the sun, the sun worships so to the extent that you find this to be you know related to old canaanite worship of the sun what you have here is this amazing Israelite subversion of the idea that the sun is God. Like in so much biblical theology, basically all biblical theology, God is not the world and the world is not God. There's no pantheism here, right? The sun is not God. The sun, like everything else, is created by God and thus um, spends its time praising God for its creation. To put that one more way natural phenomena testify to God, but they are not gods. God entirely transcends nature. Now, one interesting historical point that some people might find fun to know about before we kind of dive into the text verse by verse, there was a time when many historical scholars tried to argue that a psalm like this was a polemic against the sun cult, that was common in other ancient Near Eastern religions. Nahum Sarna, um, very influential Jewish Bible scholar, for example, um, makes that case. But in fact, more recently, our understanding of ancient Israelite religion has changed. And it is not the case, most scholars think, that a text like this was arguing against, polemicizing against what other people were worshiping, but rather, if anything, was concerned with Israelites who thought that they could worship many gods, including Yudhai Vaveh. When a new God is introduced, people's impulse traditionally is not to say, okay, I'll jettison all the old gods and worship the new one alone, but rather say, Okay, I already worship a bunch of gods who protect me in this way and in that. Let me add one to the mix. And and the the for example, you know, the book of Deuteronomy is about. Um, to a significant degree, saying, Look, you have to make a choice. Either you worship Hashem, Yod Hei Vav or you are an idolater. You cannot, at the end of the day, worship God and something else. Um, okay, there's more we could say by way of introduction, but let me instead um, now, and maybe we'll come back to some of the more general comments. Let's instead now look at the very opening of the psalm. So, okay, we started, it should be David. all I really want to observe there, as many of you have heard me observe countless times, you know, the word the David is extremely difficult, you know, many traditional interpreters hear that to mean by David, very unlikely that it means by David, it might mean for David, for the Davidic king, in the musical tradition of David, an example of a text that would be very odd, if it meant um, by David, um, Psalm 30, which we say in the morning prayers, Mizmorshir Chanukat Habait Le David, right? A song for the dedication of the temple by David. Um, only problem with that is that David was not alive for the dedication of any temple. So Le David probably means something like in the musical tradition of David or for the, the, the Davidic king. Okay, and then the psalm itself begins, right? Hashamay misaprim el. The heavens declare um, the glory of God. Um-ma'aseyadav magid harakia, And the sky, or the firmament, proclaims God's handiwork. So here, just notice what the psalm is claiming. It is not human beings looking at the heavens and being moved to tell the glory of God. If you want an example of that, you could look at Psalm 8 which is, oh, I look at the sky and I think, wow, this must be you. No, it is not here the person talking at all, but rather imagining the heavens themselves telling the glory of God. This is part of an idea that we'll see later, for example, when we, when we look at Psalm 148, which is also part of de Zimra, the biblical notion that every created thing has the capacity as one of God's creatures to acknowledge God as its creator. Um, so we have here again, the heavens declare the glory of God. The word kavod often appears in contexts that affirm God's rule. Um, think about um, in the traditional davening, mizmor le David, havu l'adonai b'nei Elim. right? Play, praise God, you, you children of lords, havu l'adonai kavod va'oz, Give God um, kavod. Um, the words, "yabiah" and, oh, sorry. That's, that, that's all I want to say about verse two for the moment. Um, okay. And then we're going to explain how that works. Yom yom yabia omer, vilila lilayla yichave JPS, day-to-day makes utterance, night-to-night speaks out. The thing that is worth noticing here is that yabia and yichave are participial forms. That is, they speak about an action that is continuous. If you even wanted to, you could translate this as the heavens go on declaring or keep on declaring the glory, uh, the glory of God, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, right? Um, it is not something that happens once, it is something that happens all the time. Whenever I look at the heavens, I can see that they are in the process of declaring God's glory. There, there is a constancy to their praise. It goes on all the time. Um, now comes a kind of wonderfully ambiguous formulation that I think raises, like, opens the door for the first time to some really interesting reflections on what we might mean by saying that um, we experience the heavens as praising God. So we just saw, right? Yom le Yabia Omer v'layla l'layla and then comes this: Ain Omer There is no utterance. There are no words. Bleanishmaklam, that Bbleanishmak kolam is really ambiguous. Does it mean that no words are spoken which go unheard, or that no words are spoken? Say that one more time. Does it mean that no words are spoken, which go unheard, meaning that the heavens really do somehow declare words? Or does it mean that in fact No words are spoken at all. And as we'll see in a second, it means that the heavens speak of God in some way that is other than words. So just to try two translations to drive this point home in case it isn't clear. um, That's again, JPS. There is no utterance. There are no words whose sound goes unheard. Or very differently, I could offer There is no utterance. There are no words. Their sound is unheard. Two very, very different meanings. I have to say that I suspect very strongly that despite JPS, the meaning here um, is more like what other translations like the NRSV render, which is the point is that the heavens speak of God, but they do so not, with words. And in fact, what I suspect is going on here um, to borrow a phrase from um, a Bible scholar named James Mays is that the visible becomes vocal. I see something and I hear it as speech. When I look at the heavens, it is as if they are using words to declare God's glory. Seeing is experienced as hearing, right? So the heavens don't actually speak, but, yes, but yet their speech reaches everywhere. And what I meant by saying, just to sort of almost you know, flesh this out a bit too much, is it raises the interesting question of, to the extent that you experience nature as somehow testifying to God or praising God, what does it mean to you to say that? Or what is the nature of that experience, if you prefer? Is it that somehow you imagine that they're talking or is it that you experience simply what they are and what they look like, as if it were speech? Um, I confess, I have not been following the comments in the chat. I will look there. Feel free to uh, um, to, to add comments there. Although I will probably um, I will probably only look at them later, so that I don't get totally distracted. Um, and then we hear the next part: "Bechol haaret yatzak kavam." What kavam means? neither I nor anyone else is sure. Um, Their voice, J.P.S. based on um, the Arabic, carries throughout the earth, okay, and their words go out to the end of the earth. And then, right, um, God placed in the heavens, a tent for them. Now, the idea that God makes a tent for the sun is a suggestion that the thought the sun is thoroughly subordinate to God. It is one of God's servants rather than somehow some kind of independent reality. Once again, the sun is God's. It is not God. It is the motion of the sun. Um, and it, just to kind of tell you where we're going in a minute, we're going to get to some of the kind of most delicious ambiguities. This is a a text that revels in its ability to play with. The ambiguity of biblical Hebrew. We're going to see some of that in a minute. It is possible, I suppose, that the Belini Shma Kolam we saw earlier is an intentional ambiguity, but I'm not prepared to defend that. I don't know. Um, I, that may just be that there's one correct reading, and we're not sure what it is. But in other cases, I think there are very deliberate ambiguities. And then verse six: yasiska gibor Orach. The sun here right, seems to come out in the morning from its, where it has been, I guess, um, it has been a bridegroom sharing the night with its wife, meaning it, it, it gets up and the, the sun is like the glorious strength of the bridegroom. Um, and then the image either complements the first one or shifts it to um, some kind of warrior who's running across a battlefield. And I think here the image is the sky coming up in the morning and making its way across the sky. All of that in some kind of, I think, celebration or praise um, of God. Um, So the sun's radiance kind of suggests the joy of the groom. Now comes a kind of a beautiful pun, which I think will be really important for us as we see how the two parts of the text connect to one another. His rising place is at one end of the heaven, and his circuit goes all the way across the heavens. And then this wonderful phrase, which I think is a magnificent pun, right? Nothing escapes his heat, but doesn't only mean heat, Chama is another biblical Hebrew word for sun, for Shemesh. In which case, now just bear with me for a minute if your Hebrew is not super strong, okay? Ein nistar mechamato can mean nothing is hidden from the sun's light, hachama shel ha-shemesh. Or it can mean ve'ein nistar mechamato, and nothing is hidden from the sun. Hama shall Hashem, right? In other words, and that's yet another demotion of the sun. There's no greater way of saying that the sun is not a god than to call it chamato, the ultimate demotion. I just happened to see um, a comment listed here about chama also meaning anger. Not sure chama and ha-ma should be should be mixed here. I don't think anger really is what's going on here. I'm sorry that that's the worst comment, on, the first comment, <laughs> the worst comment, that was a great Freudian, so that was a, the, the first comment I saw. And I'm hoping that, that as Lex comments, he's gonna maybe pick out some questions and then share them with me in a longer email to me that I can then sort my way through, okay? Now, all of a sudden now, the text seems to do an abrupt shift and you'll notice the JPS, um, You'll notice here the, the, the JPS, um, you know, inserts a space here. We have here Torat, Hashem, mima Mishivat, Nefesh. The teaching of the Lord is perfect, and it renews life.,,. Adonai peti. Hashem's decrees are faithful, something like that. Um, they make the, the simple person wise. Now, first of all, I should just make clear, Torah here means instruction, right? On the assumption that this psalm is written before the Torah is canonized, right? More traditional parshanim will say here, Torah means the Torah, since after all, David is after Moshe. Much more likely here, Torah means, from the same way we use the modern word, ora'ah, instruction. Um, So God's instructions are pure. They restore life and God's laws, decrees are um, faithful and they make even the dumb wise. Um, and then the precepts of Hashem are just, they cause joy. This is one of the texts that I think is important for when you think about, um, the history of Christian anti-Judaism and the notion that Judaism was legal as opposed to loving, right? The many places in Tanakh and in rabbinic literature and in the liturgy where the law itself, if that's what's being talked about here, um, is itself a source of great joy, right? Here, um, God's precepts cause the heart joy, mitzvat Adonai bara, God's precepts are God's instruction, God's commandment, um, is clear, it makes the eyes light up. Um, here already, the phrase lighting up the eyes should bring to mind the image of the sun and its radiance. And I want to kind of come back to that um, in just a moment. Okay, and then again, the fear of Hashem is pure, abiding forever mishpatei Adonai emet, God's judgments are true, tzadku they are righteous um, altogether. Now, um, I'm going to take a one-minute digression here just to say something that I say in almost all classes on Tanakh because I think it helps people who are reading English translations. The way that it has become conventional to render God's names in English is deeply confusing because right we usually translate jps does this for example elohim as god and the name vav hevavhey as the lord vav hevavhey is a proper name elohim is a is a common noun a job description okay so in other words if god had a business card it would say vav hevavhey and under it, it would say Elohim, right? yod heh vav is the name. Elohim is what God does for a living, as it were. That is very confusing to get in an English translation because very commonly Elohim is rendered as God and yod Vavhe vav as the Lord. So the Lord is a proper name. God is a job description. Again, if God had a business card, it would say the Lord comma, God. But in fact, most people who have a religious life that takes place in English, I think would use those words in the other way, right? I'm guessing, I don't know, that if I went around the room and said, those of you who have occasionally or or ever prayed to God in English may very well refer to God by the proper name God and think of the Lord as a common noun. You, in other words, would be tempted to translate God, comma, the Lord. Aryeh Kaplan, in his idiosyncratic but interesting translation of the Chumash, in fact translates "Hashem Elokeinu" not as in many translations, "the Lord our God," but rather "God, our Lord." Okay. The reason why we translate "Yud Vavhe Vav is as the Lord is because it became Jewish practice to pronounce "Yud Vavhe Vav hei with what Kabbalists call "Shem Adnut," right? With the word Adonai, which means "my Lord," hence the connection of the name Yudhevaveh and Lord. But you know, when you—that's why I think also many Jews, when they hear you know the decrees of the Lord are enduring, it seems incredibly archaic to them. But it's actually a proper name; it's God's name, Yudhevaveh. Okay, I hope that that was clear. If it wasn't, I will look forward to questions and comments about that. Now that we've seen this kind of, kind of m- moving but somewhat conventional statement of praise of God's mitzvot, we have an intensification where we're going to talk about the ways in which the mitzvot are, God's teaching is delicious. It is like sensually moving. Okay. So if you look at at verse 11, they are more... Um, beautiful than gold here I suspect Robert Alter is right that you should read the me here as more even than so that you would render this pasuk they are more desirable than gold more desirable even than the finest gold sweeter than honey than nofet sufim sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb, okay? Um, And then comes my very favorite pun in the Hebrew Bible, in Tanakh. Um, It is one of the most glorious double entendres you will ever find in Hebrew, I think. And it also shows you why I think these two halves of the Psalm belong totally together. Then the text then says, Excuse me, gam avdicha nizhar bahem. Your servant, um, JPS translates, your servant pays them heed. Perhaps your servant is careful about them. Except that in a text that has been about the sun and light, gam avdicha nizhar bahem, takes on a double meaning. Your servant is careful with them, but also your servant is lit up by them. Gam har by him. Milashon zohar. The mitzvot, light me up. If you prefer more subtly and in a more wisdom literary kind of way, they illumine me. Um, this is an amazing image. Not only am I careful about them, I wanna do what you say, but I am set alight by them. The mitzvot set me alight. Um, and here's the question for anyone who davens this text on a regular basis. When was the last time you felt in some deep experiential way? Yes, your mitzvot set me on fire. They set me alight; They light me up. And how do we go about um, recovering such a sense um, if we've lost it? And the combination of being careful and being lit up, I think it's actually quite a, you know, it's an image that Chazal, the, the Talmudic sages would love because on the one hand, law is something to be taken with great care and it is spiritually enlivening, uplifting and transformative. So here again, what I wanna sort of just observe is that just as the sun brings light to the world, God's instruction brings light to me. And in some sense, the God who is revealed by nature parallels the God who is revealed in divine instructions. Okay? Um, and then, um, um, Bishomram Rav, in observing them, there is great reward. Um, there, I suspect, um, there, I suspect, um, that, um, the Ekev Rav is not, oh, if I do them, God rewards me, but doing them is in some fundamental sense, its own reward. There is a reward that comes from following God's instruction, both because it's God's and because it's wise. Um, could Avdecha refer also to the sun? I think almost definitely not. To be honest, in this context, I think that's a stretch. Um, um, and then we have Shkiot um, miyavin, who can be aware of errors. clear me of sins that I am. Um, perhaps not aware or not conscious of. Um, this can either mean, um, I think, keep me from willful sins or keep me from willfully sinful people, right? Keep me safe from them. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be tamim pure, blameless, um, utterly dedicated to God, then I shall be clear of committing um, very grave offenses. Um, and then finally, a line that is familiar to Jews, of course, from traditional liturgy, may the words of my mouth, the be, and the intentions of my heart be, um, acceptable to you, Laratzon, Riva Goali. Oh God, my rock, and my redeemer. Now, I want to say just a few sentences about this um, this verse, which I think is really quite fascinating. Um, first of all, in light of what we've seen before, um, I wonder whether it's a stretch to imagine that the idea in part is, May the words of my mouth, like the heavens, somehow declare the praise of God. But also, um, Ratzon is a word that in various places, already in Shemot, more powerfully even in or Ratzon suggests a worthy and desired sacrifice. So worthy speech and a heart with proper intention are seen as equivalent to, and maybe even a form of, sacrifice to God. God ultimately desires those things as much as, if not more than actual sacrifice. One of the things that strikes me as incredibly interesting here is that a verse like this is one of the things that arguably enables the Jewish tradition to go on in the face of the destruction of the temple. In a world where you have lost that thing that is most associated with ratzon, Right, their sacrifices will be a ratzon, desirable, acceptable, before you. The fact that the Tanakh itself says, may my words be a ratzon, makes it possible that 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 liturgy can stand in for sacrifice. Um, Okay, now... One more comment about this, and then I wanna make one larger observation and then try to respond to some questions that have come up in comments. Um, I have to say that I'm not persuaded by this, but some scholars have tried to argue that Hashem Tsuriva Goali, which is translated here as my rock and my redeemer. Some scholars have tried to suggest that since the Goel in biblical law, is the next of kin, right? So, in other words, if if I accidentally kill someone, their goel hadam, their avenger of blood, who is their next of kin, can come and try to avenge their death by killing me. They some have tried to translate the ending of this psalm is, "O Lord, my rock and next of kin." This strikes me as homiletical, even if it's also really beautiful and interesting. I, I just I. I hard time believing that that's what's intended here. I think it has the more expanded general sense of a protector. Oh Lord, my rock and my protector. But here's the larger point I want to make as sort of a way of like concluding a reading of this text. So if you noticed in the first part through verse seven, we talked about God in fairly generic terms, and we called God Ale. A fairly generic term for God. It was only when we introduced Torah and the revelation of divine law and divine instruction that, um, when we got to the to to the introduction of divine law and divine instruction, that my relationship with God became personal. In other words, you don't have a Lee my god when you're talking about nature you only have Ale god it is only when you're talking about god's revelation that god becomes personal tzuri the goali my rock and my redeemer in other words the god of nature arguably however powerful that god might be however powerful you think a revelation of god the natural world might be very few people hang out in the Grand Canyon, and are moved to the discovery, oh, God loves me and cares about my every deed and thought. For that, the psalm may be arguing, even though I I hate the idea of a poem arguing something, but, right, the psalm may be suggesting, intimating, that while nature can get you to God, it can't get you to a relational God. It can't get you to a God who cares about me, I don't know that I'm infinitely valuable by looking at the moon. I know that by learning what's revealed in Torah or so I suspect this Psalm would wanna, would wanna argue. Um, um, that's at least what I want to what, 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 what I propose. And there's something there I think is very powerful. You know, this is a major debate in 20th century theology where there are people who say, look, the God of nature just doesn't get you to where religion matters most, right? Martin Heidegger's famous observation that um, no one gets down on their knees and prays and dances before the first cause, right? What you want is to pray before a God who is personal and has relationship, um, and 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 is revealed, etc. That last sentence is not Heidegger; it's my taking Heidegger somewhere else. Um, Okay, so um, that I think is a fascinating question, right? To the extent that you're interested in a, what you would describe, how, whatever this phrase means to you, as a personal relationship with God, for that you might need revelation, whatever you understand that to mean, rather than just, let's say, a hike outdoors. However powerful a hike outdoors is, for most people, it doesn't get us there. And to the extent that it does, it's usually because we also have a notion of revelation that lies in our consciousness from someplace else. Okay, um, so now let me look at some at some questions here. Um, sorry, Lex, I see you sent me something, but I'm losing it. From Q and A is Hegelianly be self-deprecating? Like, I don't think that Hegelianly be here is self-deprecating. I think it's deeply inwardly focusing. You know, those of you who have studied with me over the years and, you know, are aware of my own whatever theological work, know that I'm pretty obsessed with the idea that Judaism, going back to Tanakh, is totally the the caricature of Judaism being about what I do and not what I think or feel is totally misguided. Here is one of many examples of that. not just what I say, but also what my intentions are. Um, Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra, um, commenting in Deuteronomy on the prohibition on coveting, actually, he might say this in shmot I don't remember. Um, Ibn Ezra actually says, you know, wonderfully there, the purpose of the Torah is to set the human heart right. Lotachmo doesn't mean, as it's taken, he says, by some Jewish legal texts, to be don't act on coveting. It means don't covet, purify your heart from the work on purifying your heart from those kinds of intentions. And he says, for those who say that Judaism cares about what I do, but not about what I feel, the whole concept of shogeg and mezid, of intentional and unintentional, makes no sense at all. Obviously, what I'm thinking and feeling really matters. Um, Lex asks from Facebook do you think there is a connection between the speech in the first part of the psalm and the words of my mouth and between Torah and meditations of my heart so um, I think what I would say about that is that literally, something very interesting is going on here um, about words um, in part one of the psalm the heavens speak in part two, then God speaks in revealing the law. And then in part three, the psalmist speaks. That's um, uh, Michael Fishbane sort of reads the progression of words in the psalm that way. You might also say, if you prefer, right, the first part is words about God. The second part is words by God. And the third part is words to God. So there's some kind of interesting playing around with different modes of speech to, about, and on behalf of God. I don't know that I have so much more to say about it than that, but that I think is really interesting and worth um, sort of playing around with and thinking about what it means. Lou Levine says, interesting where the etnachta is in verse 14. It is interesting. I would be interested in your typing more about what what you take to be the issue there. Um, the only B I I answered before the psalm starts with soundless perhaps wordless expressions of praise and the psalm proceeds with words word praising teaching and ending with Imrei fi, in contrast to the heavens wordless praise and then the prayer of my heart reminds me of the wordless praise of the heavens very interesting so that I, I think I tried to respond to that as best I could with the sort of the, the two versions of the tripartite structure of relationship to words in this text, I do think it's interesting. The pray What you say here, the prayer of the heart arguably being parallel to the wordless praise of the heavens. They need to think about that more. I hadn't really seen that, but that's a really kind of astute and interesting observation. Uh, on Ale, Richard Middleton says, versus God as personal, how about yod heh vav he, um, our Lord, in Psalm 8? Richard, if you could type in a little bit more about what you mean by that question... I will be grateful. I don't know if you mean Adonai Adonainu um, at the end of Psalm 8, but you'll, you'll let me know. Um, um, Sarah asks, what do you mean by revelation when it comes to a personal relationship with God? Can you say more? I guess, actually, that if I were to answer that question more carefully, what I would say that the text is interested in, maybe my use of the personal language is, is not the best, What I guess I mean is that when you look at the sun or at the natural world more generally, you don't get from there a sense of, oh, there's a God who cares. You get from there, there's a God who creates, a God who is source. And it's from Torah, from Revelation more broadly, that you get the idea that that same God who creates is also a God who loves the widow and the orphan and cares about injustice. What I'm pointing out is nature alone will never get you to that point. At least I don't think it will, at least not for most people. Natural theology, right? Theology based on just simply looking at the natural world and seeing what you might be able to discern about God from there does not get you the God who will one day wipe away the tears from all faces, right? There is is another step that is very radical and fundamental. And in fact, I think one of the most fundamental theological commitments of Tanakh is that the God who creates is also the God who cares and therefore redeems, right? Judaism, the Bible, you know, does not worship a God who just makes stuff, but God who makes stuff and is invested in its flourishing and well being. Um, I think it's hard to get there from nature. Um, I think it may be, frankly, impossible, just not what um, God does. You know, you know, Heschel, following a whole tradition of 20th century Jewish thought, says somewhere, you know, look, even if you could prove the first, you know, that God is the first cause, none of what Judaism most cares about would you have gotten by proving that, right? The first cause does not love widows. For that, you need the Torah to tell you that God loves widows. Um, um, Amitai asks if there is an implied union between the sun and the moon in the, in, in the chuppah, um, in verse five. So the only reason I am hesitant about that is I'm not sure you see a moon here. Um, it's an interesting kind of impulse, but I'm not sure that I see evidence that that's actually one of the things that's that that's the image here. Although on the other hand, it would be fair for you to respond, wait, if the sun is coming out of his chupa, who has he just spent the night with? It's an interesting question. I have to sit with that a little bit more. Feel free to ask me that again in a couple of weeks after I've had a chance to think that through a little more. Um, Ed writes here, if redemption is connected with redeemer, does that mean that the redemption means that the evil is punished and I'm not just saved? That would seem to be the paradigm of the Exodus story. Does that mean that? The... Interesting question. Um, I would say this, that the attention of this psalm does not seem to be on the consequences for the sinner so much on the liber- as on the liberation for the victim. And that in some sense would be a contrast to the focus on, in Shemot where the two are inextricable. Um, why do so many teachers, not to mention the liturgy, put this Psalm first? I don't know what you mean by that. I would love to hear um, by what you mean by putting it first. You mean that when you take classes on Psalms, they teach you this Psalm first? Not familiar with that, I didn't know that. I would be interested in thinking about that too. Um, someone else asks, um, I'm struck by how the beginning is about silence and then the part involving people requires speech. Yes, well, there again, I think one of the things that's one of the interesting pieces of the psalm here um is the wordless praise of the rest of creation coupled with the wordful praise if I can make up a word of humanity. Um Richard Middleton, if you want to add any insights here, You are more than invited to do that. Richard, who's on this call, is a far more accomplished biblical scholar than I am. Um, uh, Richard writes here, it's at the start and end. Yes, Hashem Adonainu, and this is a creation psalm. psalm, The God who creates is understood to be a God who cares for mere mortals and who has crowned them with hod vehadar. Yeah, so that's interesting. Richard here, just to be clear, is commenting on Psalm 8. Um, which is the great? Many of you know Psalm eight, even if you don't know, you know it because you're familiar with the the King James version of you know what is man that thou art mindful of him, etc. Richard, I hear what you're saying, but I guess I remain to be convinced that Psalm eight is describing a person's experience of nature separate from revelation. The whole notion where in Psalm eight where it says. Um, um, you have put the the person in charge of all creation, laid everything underfoot. I think that that, if anything, is based on a vision of Genesis 1, not nature alone. I'm not sure that Psalm 8 is a nature psalm in the same way as Psalm 19 is. I think Psalm 8 is a nature revelation psalm, which is very different. That would be at least my argument. Um, um, Ed Farber writes again I understand that I'm not supposed to cover it in my heart but if I do and don't act upon it I'm still innocent no if not it will make for neurotic people since you can't control your emotions oh Ed you've got to start coming to my shiurim because this is what I've been arguing about for years and years and years you can't control your emotions the way you can control a refrigerator door or a faucet right but you can control your emotions in the sense of cultivating them Um, this I would argue is what the Rambam believes. This is what the Sefer Hachinuch argues, right? You're right. I can't control my feelings in the sense of, you know, I can walk over to the refrigerator and say, I'm going to open the door. And then I open it. I can't walk over to you and say, Ed, I'm going to love you now. And then sure enough, I conjure authentic love, but there's all kinds of decisions I can make actions I can take that make it more likely that I will come to love you. This is an idea that is really central to Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. From there, it gets picked up by the Rambam and Hilchot Deot and the Shmonap Rakim. It is central to Sefer Achinuch and it is all over Musser in the 20th century. Um, So I would say it isn't clear, actually, that for the Bible, if I have negative feelings and I don't act on them, I am not blameworthy. Sometimes, of course, that's true but sometimes very often it's not. I can send you um, various audio files where I try to flesh that out based on contemporary moral philosophy as well, where the notion that you have no control over your feelings um, has been called dramatically into question. I think the issue is probably that we need a more subtle word than control. Control, can't control my feelings or my beliefs, but I can make it more or less likely that I think or feel um, a particular thing right? We can cultivate compassion, even if we can't decide to feel it in a particular moment. This is really the heart in many ways of the book on love that I've been working on um, is to argue exactly this point. I like cultivate better than control, but it doesn't apply to jet fans. Okay. Well, you know, we don't talk about, we don't talk about sports here because we're missing it too badly. Um, Let me just take a couple more questions that are here and then move on, and then we'll we'll call it a day because I do wanna honor ending on time, lots of people in the middle of their workday. Richard seems to acknowledge that I may be right about Psalm eight. Can verse four be the Cartesian tree falling in the forest without being heard? Words and speech just don't exist. That's a loose question. You know, here's why I don't think so. I believe that the Psalms as a rule believe that nature has a relationship with God that is not dependent on human hearing at all. If you look at Psalm 148, you know, humans are not brought into the chorus of praising God till well into the Psalms, something like the 13th or the 14th verse. Um, I may be off by a pasuk or two, I don't have it in front of me, but first of all, that feels like too abstract a philosophical question for an ancient liturgical poem, but also I just don't see that. It is not that, the natural world praises God so that humans will hear it. The natural praise, world praises God and humans can discern it, but they don't praise God so that humans can discern it. They praise God because they've been created by God. So I I, I would I would demur. I don't think that's what it means here. Um, okay, we'll just take two more and then we're going to end. Verse 13 brings in the unique human capacity to make mistakes in contrast to nature in the heavens. That seems to say that the words come from awareness of error. That's interesting. Um, I guess I'm not persuaded yet because the words begin before any mention of error, right? The Psalmist is praising God's mitzvot before he has failed at them. So, I see what you're saying, and I think it's actually quite moving, but I'm not sure you can defend that as pshat. Certainly it is the case that words of penitence and the desire to live in a way that is desirable to God um, is a major source of words, but to think that it's the source of speech feels to me to be pushing a little too hard on this psalm. Um, Last comment, um, which I now lost, um, Deborah and then oh John Blake's comment I thought we don't talk about sports because of our <laughs> okay never mind going to ignore that somebody was making fun of my athletic prowess which should not be called into question um, do the words finally Shoshana do the words come from awareness of error or do the words and error come from the human intellect I'm not sure the word as I say I'm not sure all the words come from error and I'm not sure the words only come from intellect If by intellect is how you're rendering lave, um, I am somewhat skeptical that lave really means intellect the way many Bible scholars think it does. I suspect that lave is more generally the source of willing thinking and feeling. It is all three woven together. Um, So the words here come from the heart in the way that we would mean it, the mind as we would say, and also the will. I'm gonna stop there. I hope that what we've done is a combination of reading words really carefully and raising some of the philosophical and theological questions um, that this text um, brings out. I think for our next session, we're gonna work on Psalm 22, um, more famous among Christians and among Jews because it's the Psalm that Jesus recites on the cross, um, but it's one of the more interesting biblical laments And we're going to see just a psalm that is emotionally wildly extravagant, like incredibly frustrated lament, incredibly extravagant praise, and sort of see what it means in a more meta way. We'll talk a little bit about the psalms as emotional expression. Okay. Thank you all so much. Thank you to Dan and Lex for making this possible. Happy to hear feedback either to Dan and to Lex or to me directly on my email, which is on the source sheet, I believe, that some of you downloaded. Um, And thank you. So uh, we will see you hopefully, Dan, correct? Thursday at three again.
2: Thursday at three, everybody, thank you. Thank you, Shai, for joining us. This has been absolutely awesome. I just full on agree with all the commenters that are saying this was just an incredible hour. Um, Just quick quick reminders to everybody out there. A, to those of you who listen live, thank you. Tell all your friends. Um, Some of you are on Facebook right now. Some of you are on YouTube right now. Some of you are in the Zoom meeting itself. Um, Whatever your preferred modality is, um, it's available there, so let folks know. Um, we had some small issues with streaming on our website today, but it, it will be streamed more effectively next time on jewishlive.org. Um, and also, all of our weekly classes will be living there on jewishlive.org, and we hope that you'll check those out as well. So thank you all. We are going to close out this meeting, but there's more on Thursday at 3. There's more coming, coming, to, your, coming to your screens in the next few weeks. And also in between, just feel free to send us emails with questions, with thoughts for the future, all of that good stuff. Thank you all so much.